Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Arb Life Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dale Luthringer, Environmental Education Specialist at Cook Forest State Park in Pennsylvania. We discussed the park's Hemlock Woolly Adelgid Management Program over the past five years in the context of large-scale treatment, the challenges that have transpired, and the hemlock's importance as a keystone species in the ecosystem. This is the Arb Life, for arborists to be inspired. Well, I really appreciate you you giving me a shout, Dale. Um, the, I, I guess some of my biggest concerns were, or not concerns, but uh, uh, topics of uh, interest sort of start with... Um, your management practices out there with the with the hemlock willy adelgid and sort of your uh, your impressions um, managing the pest since since you guys discovered it. So I, I guess we can start there. Is how long have you been at it out there? Oh, uh, we've been we first found it in 2013. Uh, I believe it was March, and we were able to start treating in May of 2013. We've been doing it ever since. So you've been, I mean, you're basically, you know, five, six years in, into the program at this point. Can you, uh, can you talk about, you know, from a broader perspective, um, what that's been like? I know, I know five years is, is sort of a small scope in terms of long-term management. Um, but, but what has been, you know, uh, your, your initial, uh, observations, thus far in the process? Um, well, we thankfully we, we were able to get started uh, treating quickly. We had already had uh, protocols in place of what we were going to do when it got here. Uh, so we had already prioritized our stands and had a rough idea on, oh, how many inches, you know, in a, in a, created in a, in a certain acreage. Um, and uh, so we didn't have to, we already had our, our homework done, so that helped us out immensely. Also, it was kind of uh, the timing of when we found it. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't good news that we found it, but uh, I went out on a you know, trail in our most significant stand and uh, was going out a day or two days before we had a conference with the, uh, uh, the Nature Conservancy at Claring University and... Uh, uh, National Forest, USDA, I mean, everybody was coming together from a variety of agencies to talk about the management, how we, what we would do when it got here. And when I went up there looking at this trail, because it was you known to be pretty icy in March, uh, you know, I bent down to look over and bingo, there it was. So instead of, you know, what are we going to do when we had the, the conference, what are we going to do when it gets here? It was, what are we going to do? It's here, you know? Right. So it was really kind of a, a great opportunity. We already had all the play, many of the players right there, so uh, it was a great opportunity to get the ball rolling. And um, uh, thankfully in uh, DCNR, it didn't take long uh, for us to get our first treatments out. And um, uh, it, uh, we, again, we found it in our most significant hemlock stand, which is the tallest known hemlocks in the northeast located there 
and it was in all age classes. I mean, it was in uh, you know the, the, the seedlings, you know, you know, little ones that are maybe I call them seedlings, but they could be twenty years old on an old growth forest. But you know, they were they were in the small size trees. You know, they were only maybe six to twelve inches all the way up through the old growth, and uh, it was probably probably had already been here at least two, maybe three years before we found it. Right. And I mean, it was. I mean, if you could, if you looked, it was on trail. But I mean, it was, it was way off trail and steep slopes, and that really nobody goes to. Right. So we mostly attributed, you know, its arrival here to most likely neotrop, you know, the warblers coming back, neotropical migrant birds. And uh, it was generally that's where we were finding it first off was along the Clarion River, and then it was starting. We were starting to find it branching up into various watersheds from the river. It seemed. Right. And, uh, so we so, first started. Tre- can I? I just want to back up because I think what Go you ahead. said, what 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 you said there was was uh, just really fascinating. So you're 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 hypothesizing that that it could have been introduced by a warbler, by a migrant warbler. Yeah, that that seemed to be what the consensus was of how it got into some of these areas. Right. You know, we know it wasn't. Now, can, we don't can, have many people hiking off those trails that could have brought it in on their person or their pets. Right. And uh, most of those folks aren't generally coming from, let's say, at the time, down in the Carolinas or in the eastern side of the state. You know, and right. and all that. So, I mean, they they had to, you know, they had to come in here naturally. Right. You know, so all we're thinking of is the best explanation seemed to have been. Uh, you know, uh, you know, hitching a ride. Right. The crawlers hitching a ride and, and getting in that way. I mean, that's you know, you talk about uh, just ecosystems and and how they're connected, um, and and how these you know this these invasives move around. I mean, a lot of times, uh, doing some reading here, uh, some texts on uh, ecosystem management and and uh they sort of touch on the topic of how these things um you know you sort of think of these hierarchies and and the way that things fit into place in linear terms but a lot of times it's it's non-linear um almost on this uh, verge of chaos how these things are are interconnected what what has been um what what has been the challenges of management I mean, has it has it been like a, a more or less a funding thing, or are you finding challenges, you, you know, uh, across the board in in other dimensions as well? Can you can you talk a little bit about the challenges of dealing with that? Um, well, I think the I think the biggest challenge it was two two big challenges, but the the first one is are they going to give us money to treat, and that that. And I mean that that question was answered very quickly, and that they allowed us to start treating and uh, were giving us uh, some people and resources within the agency. Uh, you know, within within two months, we were on the ground trying to do something about it. Right. Uh, but it, what we the but the but it quickly once we started using the methods. I mean, we we were putting chemical out there, but you know, we once we started using the methods and. Uh, and the materials that we, we quickly came to realization that uh, things weren't as being consistently applied with the methods that we were using. So right. we had to uh, 
we had to dig into some personal contacts and friends that have been treating this stuff down south in the Smokies for a long time. Right. And had already been talking with them off and on. And so we had to convince, you know, our top state people to let someone come in from the out, you know, from down south who's treating this stuff for many years, right. talking with the companies on site, using the chemicals, using the variety of different methods to convince our people that we need to change our treatment tactic. Right. And so, I mean, that's, I mean, you got, you, you got, you know, it's, it's the bureaucracy. Totally. You know, people who do this for a living for, or, you know, who do this on a regular basis or have, you know, their mindset for the last 10, 15 years, this is how, this is what we do this is what we do in Pennsylvania, you know what I mean? Right. And so to try to convince those people that, you know, maybe we need to consider another approach, we don't have time to muck around with this. And, uh, you know, they let us bring in uh, a speaker from out of state who uh, names Will Blozan. I'm sure you're familiar with Will. Oh, yeah. And, uh, I mean, Will is one of the top guys in, in actual treatment out in the field with this beast. Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, so we, we had him, we had him here for two days and, uh, you know, like you could almost feel the tension before it even started, you know, it's like, uh, you know, like, you know, I'm just, anyway, within about five minutes of the presentation of Will starting, you could, you know, like the air was just, let's say, let out of the room. I mean, everybody realized they weren't there to attack each other, you know, or criticize, you know, what each other, you know, was doing. It's like, here's what's worked. Here's what we've done, you know. And, uh, you know, I, I had uh, I had some of the higher-ups come, up, come up after and say, you know, every once in a while, we need to be reschooled on stuff like this, you right. know. And so, I mean, it was just amazing. So it, uh, it really opened up uh, possibilities for us to switch our treatment tactics, to go to cheaper chemicals, to go to uh, different uh, application methods. And uh, so, I mean, it was a learning progress on our end, but, uh, you know, our, our people in the state who, who really run that entire project um, were, were very open and uh, uh, allowed us, you know, to not waste time going through methods that uh, weren't particularly useful for uh, for for our site, right. I mean, they they certainly did the job. We we, we first went in with the Safari, and I mean that stuff works great. But I mean it's super expensive, right? You know, and we were we were, you know, anyway, it, it tends to the, the equipment that you use, the temperature of the water, and all this stuff. It's very hard to get a consistent application. Right. And uh, so we, we put that out, but I mean, that's, that's, that's expensive stuff. So we still have it and we haven't used it in a while, but we would only use it really now if we're trying to, you know, bring back, let's say a special tree or a special stand that was hit pretty hard or, you know, that we, it, it, that safari's great stuff, but it's just, it's expensive. I mean, it, it can bring a tree back from what normally we would think is just, it's, it's beyond the point of no return. Right. Um, so we we reserve that for when we really need it. So now we're in, and we've been into various formulations. Even that first year, we started into various formulations of imidacloprid right. and ran into problems with the injectors clogging up and things like that. And so, um, but again, we, we 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 got to the point once we worked through a lot of those problems, you know, that we were 
we were putting it out and we were we were knocking back the bugs and uh, so it went from really being uh, let's say state park managed on the ground to now being really uh, uh, state forest forestry's taken over to really managing the whole project right and uh, we've got contractors we try to get to come in every year if we can get the funding and uh, so the the state is treating with uh, we have a small uh, technician crew that's dedicated to treating here cook forest with the Bureau of Forestry right there could be two or three maybe four technicians out there treating maybe three three or so days a week right and uh, you know they and then maybe once a month we'll get a bunch of DC and our folks together so we'll have maybe three or four days a week you know the small crew that's out there picking away at it and then you know we'll have like a blitz of maybe 20 some people out there which we can put a serious dent you know right and then and then also we'll have uh, the contractors if let's say a typical contract you know might run around a hundred thousand dollars and they've got you know, whenever that treatment window is, right, that works for killing the bugs and for them, they got to be on the ground. You know, they, yeah. So I mean, they're they're hitting close to a hundred thousand inches every year when we get these, uh, we can get the contract money. Dale, can you can you talk about uh, can you talk about those main windows? Uh, what what where where are you guys? Uh, you know, what what when are when are those heavy uh, those areas of of heavy treatments going on there? Well, I mean, you know. You could really you could treat as long as the ground isn't frozen. You get the chemical out there, right? But you want to stay away from drought periods because that if if the soil's dry, I mean you can you can burn out those uh, capillary roots, right? You know, but as long as it's dry and you're not treating in a torrential downpour, I mean you're injecting it, you know, into the soil or you're doing a, a type of a modified soil drench, right? Um, you know, and again, if you're if you're using the dinotefuran, you're you're really you're spraying it on the trunk of the tree, so you're looking at all that. But mostly, we're we try to we try to wait until May when things are really moving in the tree, right? And uh, try to not do as much, you know, in the drought periods, you know, in the in the in the summertime. But I mean, as long as you got rain, the soil's wet. It's gonna take. It's gonna have the uptake, and that stuff will bind to the soil. And which is kind of interesting because when we first started looking at the, you know, we you got the older literature, you know, you really had to be, you had to be, you know, let's say a pretty good distance away from any streams. But as long as you've got the right soil, that stuff, that imidacloprid binds and only moves maybe about 10 inches from where you put it. So uh, you can put it up close to the trunk of the tree as long as you're, you stay away from those sandy soils because uh, that chemical just goes right through the sand. But if you've got... You know the, the leaf litter and the, the capillary roots. You know uh, that that stuff works pretty good. It stays there until the tree to get up into the tree throughout the entire mass. You know the the cambium layer throughout the tree takes much longer than uh, the dinotefuran. You know the dinotefuran's great stuff, works quick, but it only persists maybe maybe two years before you have to reapply. Right. But the imidacloprid, it could take maybe a year to get spread out throughout the, you know, killing concentration throughout the entire large old growth tree. And, uh, but once it's up there, it may persist in killing concentrations for seven years or more. Right. So it's, you're balancing that, you know, and generally our chemical costs, it's about, uh, this is a 
rough estimate, but let's say it's about 10 cents per diameter inch right. for certain metacloprid formulations compared to dinotefran, which you know, is like at least a buck right. per diameter inch, right. which is still nothing compared to what this the contractors a- used to charge us back, you know, this estate back in the late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, you're looking at 850 per diameter inch. You right, know? right. And some of them may still want to try and charge that, but I mean, uh, with the, with a lot of the metacloprid going to the generic formulations, a lot of those prices have come way down, you know, so if you shop around, you know, you can, uh, you should be able to find something that's certainly affordable if you're going to be treating on mass. Right. With the state, you know, we've got, we can, we, we buy chemical, you know, in bulk to contract prices, so we can keep our chemical costs down, but you know, you pay a contractor, and I mean, he's got all kinds of, you know, costs that they're carrying between labor and equipment, travel to and from site, lodging if they're going to stay there. Right. You know, so I mean, they're not going to charge you ten cents per diameter inch. You know, it's a business they got to make. You know, they got to make money. But, right. Right. You know, so but they certainly, you know, chemical costs are nothing compared to what they used to be. You know, ten even ten years ago, just amazing. So you know, we're just again. And the other thing is fighting the mindset that it's hopeless to treat, and uh, it, it's not hopeless. It's just a matter of whether you're willing to, you know, put the the time and the resources into it. And um, it's it's certainly doable. You know, it's uh, you, 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 if you think at it as one huge problem. Without prioritizing everything, it seems hopeless. But uh, you know, you may have you may have four thousand acres of hemlock forest. But you know, okay, well, let's be realistic. We're not. You certainly aren't going to treat that much in one year. You got all. You got label restrictions. You got to deal with. So you you prioritize what stands you're going to treat. You see how much money you're. You know, you might have to spend on it. And uh, you know, so it's uh, you know. You, it's it's not as expensive as it was when we talk with property owners, you know, you know it's like well I got this special couple of hemlocks, you know I have some you know trees in my yard I want to save, and so well it's going to well, the argument that we often use is well it's going to be a lot cheaper to either treat it yourself or bring in somebody to treat it right. than it is to pay someone a couple thousand dollars to completely remove that tree, you know? Right. So it's just a matter of, you know, what you're going to do. And it's, uh, you know, it's, once you get past, uh, they get past, the, let's say, the, the lack of knowledge of how to treat, you know, and, and, and how cheap it actually is. Um, and it's not like, you, if, as long as you're treating on your own property, Pennsylvania, you don't, you know, with this chemical, you don't need a pesticide applicator license. Right. You, you couldn't treat on your neighbor's property without the proper licensing, you know. So it's something that a homeowner can uh, research and really uh, try tackling on his own. And if and if not, I mean, there's there's plenty of, uh, you know, contractors that are out there, you know, that they can call to come in and, and do the job for them, you know. So, right, right. Uh, no, I mean, uh, operationally, it's fascinating because... You know, you, you sort of got into you know how it, how it kind of uh, at at one time you, you know you needed like specialized contractors to be out there treating, but now it seems as though it has become sort of this interagency um, 
uh, front where, where, like you said, you, you have technicians in the field that are, that are dealing with this on a regular basis. So you're, but, but then you also have, you know, levels of specialization that are, that are out there treating and, and, and just the, the, the fact of how, uh, how the chemical has changed over the years and the pricing and, and what's available, uh, because you're really talking about specializing in large, large scale treatment. And I think that, um, that's kind of a good segue and kind of leave, leave, uh, leave listeners with, with this is maybe if we can talk a little bit about the hemlock tree as a, as a keystone species and sort of why, uh, why these, I mean, you know, you had a management plan in place, you guys did your homework, you knew this was coming, um, you know what, what? 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 What are? Why is it? Why is it important to to manage it so so intensely uh, and to be successful with this? Because I think you know a little bit of that answer lies in the importance of the of the hemlock tree. But I'd like you to talk a little bit about that about why um, it, these trees are such biological legacies and and sort of what they do for the for the landscape and for the ecosystem. Yeah, that's a long answer, um, but I mean, there's, there's, you know, we look monetarily at hemlocks, the biggest argument we get against it is, well, you know, they're not a big money tree, really don't care, they're just sucking up sunlight, let them die, and, uh, you know, let the, the profitable trees come in, but we have to also be thinking about habitat management, ecosystem management. And uh, hemlock, one of the biggest things that hemlocks do is that this is the shading, keeping the, the streams cool. A lot of it, certainly around here, Cook Forest, and when I come across larger stands, you know, a lot of times they're associated with uh, in, a, in a drainage, and they shelter the streams. And uh, so what that does, it keeps the streams cool, and we got high value. I mean, you got trout streams, trout need cold water. Uh, for them to be most productive, and uh, uh, there's folks that have done studies on water running from a deciduous forest into the hemlock forest, and then monitoring the temperatures coming in, you know, then going out and looking at the changes. And uh, one of the biggest changes is the temperature difference. That, that uh, when they go into that hemlock forest uh, shaded areas, they they drop often five to seven degrees compared to the other areas so uh, you know in, we, we know that uh, lower temperature water can hold more dissolved oxygen and if we have more disox- dissolved oxygen available in the aquatic ecosystems you can have a greater diversity of life in the stream so you know you, you'll have you'll have bugs that'll survive in the warmer water but you have a, a greater variety of you know aquatic life that can survive in the colder water because the colder water can hold more of the oxygen that they breathe in there. So uh, the other thing is that um, they hold a lot of nitrogen. A lot of the hemlock, the older, larger hemlocks are going to hold a lot of nitrogen in the system. And um, if a lot of those die at the same time or close to the same time, you can get a large nitrogen flux out of the system into the streams which can promote um, uh, a type of uh, algae that uh, depletes 
the dissolved oxygen in the stream, which not enough, not as much oxygen in the stream decreases the amount of aquatic life that you could have in the stream, that sort of thing. So, um, when we get into the wildlife uh, idea of, of things, a lot of, uh, there's certain bird species that really like the hemlock stands. Um, uh, one in particular, I was reading a paper where they, they said, that they noted that, uh, suggested that uh, the black-throated green warbler, which is pretty common around here, we have lots of hemlock forests here, was that was they were suggesting we're even obligate to a hemlock stand, which means really, you don't have a hemlock stand, you're not going to have black-throated green warbler. Right. They're just everywhere here at Cook Forest. But uh, there's other birds that we find that a lot of times like these, certainly with the old-growth stands, and here old-growth is mostly dominated by uh, conifers, mostly hemlock, uh, and then uh, and then you get into some white pine. And so uh, the... Uh, Magnolia warbler is documented 45 times more common in these uh, conifer stands. Uh, Blackburnian warbler, 40 times more often. Uh, Swainson's thrush, which is, uh, I believe, a Pennsylvania threatened bird, is found much more often in these uh, conifer stands. And uh, there's many types of wildlife that depend upon the, the, the sheltering during the winter time. You know, if you're hunting deer, a lot of times you'll you'll find them in those sheltered stands that, that uh, the lower branches will break up that, you know, the wind. So a lot of times you'll, you'll find those hanging in the cold times of the year in those, uh, in the hemlock stands. So that's about, there, there's other things I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Um, but, um, those are some of the main main reasons. Oh, there's uh, uh, on the on the trees themselves. I mean, there's a whole host of uh, you know you have birds and insect relationships uh, that uh, that the, the insects yeah, they they there's some insects they 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 use the tree as a host just to you know to you know to live. Others use the tree. They feed on it. So when you start getting into just the food web of various insects that are on there, the timing of everything, you know, and then everything eats bugs as you're going up the food chain. So, you know, you take the hemlock out. And another thing to think of with the hemlock is often they'll have branching from low, like low on the trunk all the way up to the top so that uh, there's, there's no other conifer native grown conifer that really has that in pennsylvania you know you'll have white pines you know once they get once they get up there i mean all the greens at the top you know nor you know you get norway spruce well that's really not native you know you're right don't want to plant a you know a forest to you know regrow a forest with with norway spruce but you look at you know well what are other native conifers you know they're mostly pines and most of those pines they don't have a crown that's going to, back in a forest that's going to reach all the way to the forest floor, unlike uh, hemlock, which is a, a shade tolerant uh, conifer. You know, it can grow underneath all that in that low shade compared to all the other trees. So it's filling a gap that no other conifer, native conifer in the state, can fill. So you remove that. There's different birds that like to nest at different layers, heights of the canopy. So you just you're decreasing the amount of 
diversity, I would argue, of, of life that uh, normally would live um, in that ecosystem. You know, some will argue, well, you know, you get more diversity with deciduous stands, you know, but when you look across the entire forest landscape, it's a combination of these stands. That's right. And, uh, you know, you, you know, getting rid of all the hemlock just because it's not a, you know, a big money producing tree to me isn't the answer. You want to try and keep as many species in your stand as possible. Now, granted, you may not, you know, your management process may not call for everything being hemlock, you know, and too much of, of one thing isn't necessarily a good thing either, you know, but right. having that uh, diverse uh, landscape just promotes having a greater, uh, greater, diver- a better, a diverse system that be able to handle uh, more problems in the long run. Yeah, and I mean, has that been, you know, from from a forestry perspective, um, because I, I feel like at, on, on the back end, this is kind of how it's looked at. And from a forestry perspective, you know, the management process has, you know, what, what does a forest produce? Well, at one time it was lumber, it was, it was profit, but now, you know, you see these perspectives that are looking at it from, in terms of goods and services, what does the forest ecosystem not just providing lumber, but servicing the entire the, the 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 ecosystem on the landscape level, but also globally. I mean, these stands play a real role at a on a large spatial scale. I mean, we've had this conversation in the context of just specifically Cook Forest, but you know, on a on a larger scale, I think there's there's the 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 argument there that. You know, you hear the term perpetuity. You want these things to benefit uh, exponentially into the future, and um, it's really it's really fascinating to uh, to think about how these things are connected, um, and then and then just just all the challenges uh, behind not just treatment but monitoring um, and timing. Um, and, and everything like else, like, like I'm, I'm just fascinated by the work that you're doing out there, Dale, and your, your knowledge, uh, of the, of the past, not only that, but the, the network of people that you have around you, um, bringing people in from, uh, other areas that have managed this, this past. And, uh, it's really fascinating the skills that you have in the field. And then also, you know, you talked about the bureaucratic process and, and I think that, um, it's just a fascinating job that you're doing out there, uh, managing the, the pest and, um, you're, you're just a wealth of information. I'm really grateful that you took the time, uh, to sort of kick around some of these ideas. Um, and I, I, I definitely want to use you as a resource in the future because I think, um, you know, a lot of my listeners on the podcast are arborists, um, but I think as arborists, we're also ecosystem managers to a certain degree. And uh, uh, there's a lot of themes, I think, that, that cross back and forth that people can benefit from these types of conversations. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just, I mean, I, I guess sometimes I'm, I'm put up in the forefront, but I mean, all, all that we're doing really is is just uh it's it's not me i mean you got all kinds of people that are that that are doing all the hard work and did it all really 
the folks down south, I mean, they went through it. They started with with nothing. You right. know, I mean, they 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 it slow, took a long. I mean, you, you got different agencies, different bureaucracies that don't work as fast as Pennsylvania state parks. You right. Know? Right. And uh, so, if you know, okay, well, we found it this year. Well, maybe depending upon the agency, you may not be able to get boots on the ground for two or three years. Right. You know. So I mean, and then. You know, we were able, the big thing is we were really able to benefit off of all the years of hard work that uh, so many folks had done way before us um, down south. And, uh, all, you know, it didn't matter who I talked to it, with the folks down there. I mean, they were more than willing, you know, to, 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 to give us the benefit of the information that, that they fought long and hard to just to, to learn and to go through that process. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's more than... And it's it's beyond me now. I mean, I'm I'm really not involved in in uh, in a lot of the in, in really much of the management process of that here at Cook Forest. I mean, Bureau of Forestry has really took taken over that whole thing, which is where it should be. Right. You know, they're the ones that uh, can do that. Except that you know we're all strapped for time, and you know, there's only a couple in the agency that are really heavily devoted to just Hemlock Woolly Delgid. I mean, a lot of them. I mean, everybody's got. Their, their, let's say their job title and their main, you know, job description, and so it's like, you know, fighting this battle was was kind of like big extra on top of everything else we're already doing. So uh, it's just just huge to be able to have, uh, a, a, you know, a, 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 even a small dedicated crew here at Cook Forest, and then being able to get contractor help because I mean the first year we brought a contractor in. You know, they're there. Folks are saying, "Well, you know, maybe they can do twenty thousand inches in a year." And I'm thinking, I've got friends who've treated hundreds of thousands of inches in one year. Right? There's, there's, should be no reason why they can't treat a hundred thousand inches in a year. And sure enough, they did a hundred thousand. They did, they did a hundred thousand inches in, in one treatment season, which they did in actually one month. Right. And that was more than the than uh, what we had done at Cook Forest here in in at least three treatment seasons. Right. And to date, we've probably treated, we certainly treated over a half a million inches. It's probably closer to 700,000 now. Right. And, uh, you know, so it's it's just a continual work in process. You can never be, once it's there, you can never be guaranteed that it's ever going to be gone. Right. And, uh, you know, we get cold winters every once in a while that'll, that'll knock them back. But, you know, we can't guarantee that we're going to have those super cold winters even once every three years, although we've been pretty fortunate here, right? you know, over the last, you know, five to seven years to have some couple of serious cold winters, you know, which has helped give us more time. But, you know, HWA, it's now, they found it over in Erie County, I think it was maybe two years ago. So, I mean, it's beyond us. And uh, it's just a matter of trying to convince the land managers that it is a battle that they can wage. And, uh, you know, it's not something that you're, you're not going to eradicate it, but it's something that you can keep a handle on. You should be able to save some, uh, some stands as long as you're just dealing with the hemlock woolly adults. There's, there's other things that are out there that will take your hemlocks out. But, you know, if it's just a hemlock woolly adults issue, it's, it's certainly something that can be dealt with. Right. Right. Dale, that was great. I, I'm, I'm really grateful. Uh, and and like I said, uh, you know, I'd like to uh, I'd like to keep you in the loop and and stay in touch via email because um, 
I uh, just like having you as a resource and, and you know, you, you have a great, great deal of knowledge uh, when it comes to these types of things. And um, a Dale Luthringer environmental uh, education specialist out there at Cook Forest State Park. Um, I really appreciate it, Dale. Thanks for joining us for another edition of the Arb Life podcast. You can find the blog and the podcast at our website, www.thearblife.com. Sign up for an email subscription to get all the latest updates on blog posts and podcast interviews. This is the Arb Life, for arborists to be inspired.